Psalm 5. It says, this is Psalm of David. Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my meditation. Hearken unto the voice of my cry, my King and my God. For unto thee will I pray. My voice shalt thou hear in the morning, O Lord. In the morning will I direct my prayer unto thee, and will look up. For thou art not a God that hath pleasure in wickedness, neither shall evil dwell with thee. The foolish shall not stand in thy sight. Thou hatest all workers of iniquity. Thou shalt destroy them that speak leasing. The Lord will abhor the bloody and deceitful man. But as for me, I will come into thy house in the multitude of thy mercy. And in thy fear will I worship toward thy holy temple. Lead me, O Lord, in thy righteousness because of mine enemies. Make thy way straight before my face. For there is no faithfulness in their mouth. Their inward part is very wickedness. Their throat is an open sepulcher. They flatter with their tongue. Destroy thou them, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels. Cast them out in the multitude of their transgressions, for they have rebelled against thee. But let all those that put their trust in thee rejoice. Let them ever shout for joy, because thou defendest them. Let them also that love thy name be joyful in thee, for thou, Lord, wilt bless the righteous, and with favor wilt thou compass him as with a shield. A beautiful psalm. It's got some elements of imprecatory prayer to them where David has now taken up the cause of God himself and, and he understands what, how bad evil is, how, what, how offensive wickedness is and uh, wishes for the destruction of God's own enemies. But uh, every psalm, every portion of God's word, in, in fact, has a primary sense to it. It has a a main idea, a main purpose. And it's not different with this portion of Scripture than with Ephesians. You could camp out here and take an expository approach to this psalm and pull out, I think there are probably 20 or 30 themes that you could actually pull out of here. So you could spend a length of months probably without boring anyone breaking down the psalm. What what I have time to do is to take us to the primary thought or the principal idea of the psalm and to talk about some of the, the mechanisms that are occurring, the exchanges that are happening in David's soul that are causing him to even write the song in the first place. Something's happened in him. Some observations have been made. He wants to offer to God some statements, some commitments. He puts them in the form of a song. But what happened to cause that to rise up within him? The same thing that happens to anyone who becomes more and more acquainted with God is 
words come up, um, determinations come up in your heart, and you make statements to God and promises, and you swear affinity to God, and you identify things that are pleasing to God that you need to get on board with and become a champion of yourself. And so that's, to kind of lay it out, that's essentially what we're going to talk about um, and what I'm going to share with you through God's word. The I'll read this. I put a lot of work into introduction material, so I need to read it so it's communicated properly. By the time I get up here, it's the same with my brother. Uh, it's the same with any of you who teach or preach. You can get a little scrambled. So I use this time to really be clear uh, with some of what I want to say. So over the past few months, I've been thinking actually quite at length about the future. I'm doing that from the perspective of someone in America. I'm doing that from the perspective of a, of a believer in this land. Um, I have a limited scope by which I can look at what's going on around and uh, from our own neighborhoods to uh, our national level and even international. But I'm, I'm looking at, at the future. I'm observing, pondering kind of where the unregenerate world appears to be headed. And it, it appears to be headed kind of into a headlong dive, really, into greater and greater forms of depravity. The things you see out in the open, uh, the Psalms actually, or the scriptures speak of this, the things that used to be done in, in hiding are done out in the open. And they're worse than they were ever done in, in hiding before. That we, we would hear in past eras of things that maybe were happening. Now they're just being <coughs> boasted of openly. So the world is in a, in a pretty bad state in terms of its slide into... Um, the extreme forms of depravity that man can engage in. You could say that reason is failing. The ability to reason is provided by truth. And so when, tr when a person or a group of people or a world turns its back on truth, it loses its ability to actually reason properly. Logic is fragmented. Um, beyond usefulness. Everybody has some logic, but when it gets fragmented, when it when it's no longer a whole uh, construct, it becomes less useful. And sometimes in too much fragmentation, it actually ceases to be useful at all. I think we're in, we're headed very quickly into a place where logic is not in play. Um, Anymore, not even for the not even for the natural human self-preservation um, that God infused uh, man and woman with. Law and justice feel anyway to anyone who's doing some reading or observation or pondering. They seem to be running kind of on false weights now. Justice for some and under the same circumstances, not for others. There just seems to be a real false balance to it all uh, in the world. Wicked thoughts and practice are advancing at a compounding pace. So like 
related to what I said earlier, the what used to be done in secret and was rarely heard of is now just compounding. You just hear about it every, everywhere you turn. There's moral failure. There's exceedingly wicked things happening. And I don't want to go down the list of the headlines, but you read the headlines yourself. You read some of the articles. You see the news reports about some of that just incredible degree of wickedness that pervades our society. Um, really to superficial appearances, it almost seems unopposed. So it just seems like it's just devolving without any restraint. Um, if you just if you just make reference or, or look at some reference points 10 years ago, 15 years ago, some of the stuff that we're dealing with today or that we're exposed to today is even unheard of in the 90s. Like it was like rare. In the mid-2000s, it was rare. It's, it's compounding. And um, a type of a type of madness even appears to be descending upon all mankind. It we 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 see it in history. We've seen it in history in kind of isolated pockets or in kind of a regional sense. But it seems like the whole world is going mad. You can connect that um, to the world's loss of a sense of there being any truth at all. That's really what it's related to. They've turned their backs on God. But beyond that, beyond accepting that it's real, beyond accepting that God has a truth and you're just rejecting it, beyond that, a rebellion, you now don't even believe that truth exists. And that's a super... Uh, primer for madness. That's a super primer for just no holds barred insanity. And so what, what is behind this? What is behind the, what's occurring at such an accelerated pace in our time? And I, I know that some of you give thought to these things. I know that some of you think about these things, but have you pondered just to have you connected what you see going on around you with the description in, in God's word, Genesis 6, 5, and God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every imagination of the thought of his heart was only evil continually. It's a really bad state for the world. And yet the way that it's being vomited out publicly and spewed out publicly, it feels like that sometimes. I don't know if that's just because I'm sort of connect myself to the ongoings, um, or if it's a, 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 a wrong perception, but I think it's not a wrong perception of how the world is quickly turning. Um, it would... It, it's not possible to trace out the answer in its full complexity. So I'm like, you can't gather all the information and process all the information. But you know, the uh, the underlying cause of it all, I would say, boils down to if if you 
you have to distill it all down to what is behind the condition of the world that we live in today and its headlong run or tumble into total depravity. And it would be that basically there are two types of people in the world and that's, that's really it. There are two types of people in the world that in the aggregate, so if you, if you add them all up into one group and add these all up in the, into another group, they constitute what you could call in capital letters the righteous and the wicked. That's it. At least from God's perspective, there are righteous and there are wicked people in the world. And they all have varying degrees of righteousness and they all have varying degrees of wickedness. But one, by comparison to the other, is just a tiny remnant, kind of scattered out thinly among the nations. So we would be among the righteous and there are not many in the world. You don't bump up against five of us and one of them. You bump up against 500 of them and one of us, the wicked and the righteous. And so it's a tiny group. And yet, by God's design, this little remnant actually has a massive uh, effect on the world at large. The, the influence of preservation and of illumination that comes to the world through God's little remnant is phenomenal. Um, Christ's own words, ye are the salt of the earth. That he looks out at his disciples that are following him and says, you, salt the earth. And that is to cleanse and to preserve. You are the light of the world to enlighten and guide this righteous remnant founded upon the bedrock of truth, built up in layered walls of truth, supported by pillars and buttresses of truth, girded with bulwarks of truth, whose builder and maker is the God of truth, it acts as a sort of dam that represses the, the depravity that would otherwise flood the world. It it's as if God has built up these preserving elements into the world. And it actually happens to be just a tiny remnant that proclaim the truth of the Lord everywhere their little flag is planted. Uh, they go into a, the dark jungles of some continent and, and there they plant a flag and they're sometimes murdered for it. And, and others come behind them and take up the flag and put it down again. And, and that has been the history of the remnant throughout the world's history is that we have our own little history where we have gone about being slain in the name of Christ and yet advancing the preservative um, balm and yet advancing the, the, the cleansing light of God's gospel into the world. And it has a, a meaningful effect in the world. But what happens when large sections of bedrock become soft and weak over time? What happens if the truth bedrock becomes softened and weakened over time? What happens when cracks develop and begin to spread through the walls of truth? 
what happens to the dam when certain structurally critical pillars and buttresses of truth are removed. The dam begins to leak. The floodwaters begin to rise and certain doom starts to loom on the horizon. And that is essentially what I believe is happening and has been happening for some time now in the world that we are journeying through. God's truth cannot fail. It is indomitable. It's indefatigable. It has no fatigue component to it. It cannot be dominated by some other reality. But mankind can fail to keep his truth. And so I think that's probably a good place to bring us to our psalm. The... Um, this psalm will illustrate very well for us those two types of people and God's involvement with them and what is required from them. I'm, I'm highlighting this psalm. I, I had kind of a, a several weeks to really think about which one, what passage I've been all over, um, but I'm familiar with this psalm from previous study and from previous uh, attempts to compose music around it. So, uh, and, and, and it had it has some value to me personally in my own formation, but I think it can do something to point our congregation in a direction of thought that both Al and I feel will become kind of increasingly important for us to nail down and to really have in place for the, for where the world is headed in the next few months or years to come. I mean, we, here's what I wrote. There is no longer any time left to be fooling around half-heartedly with the things of God. You're not in the 50s and 60s anymore. We're way beyond that. We're, we're in Bolshevik Russia. That's where we are, okay? We are at a point where the world is boiling and raging for war, clamoring for war. We're at a point where the, the peace people from the past decades are the ones saying, let's fight. Let's fight nuclear weapons. It's worth it. It's crazy. There's a certain madness that just seems to be with whatever's coming down the pike, whether it be reprieve by God's hand or whether it be a turmoil like we've never known on earth by God's hand, we need to be ready for it. There is no longer any time to kind of live with one foot in the church and one foot in the world to be sort of half committed to the things of God, to, to view church as a tag on to your wonderful, beautiful life. It must become the central orientation of your life. If it isn't already, it, it, it's the only connection that you need to actually have in this journey through the world. Rid yourself, unentangle yourself. Uh, Paul says to Timothy, unentangle yourself. No warrior gets tangled up. He sheds his entanglements with the world. And I think that's kind of where we're at in the time of history that we live in. We are only pilgrims on this earth. As the apostle Peter describes us, we are foreigners here. Aliens merely alongside those to whom earth is home. 
And as strangers only passing through the land, we are meant to be very different and really very different in nearly every way from the people who dwell in the land. We're, we're to have such differences between us that are so extreme Then, rather than finding us relatable, which is a, a terrible thing that developed in the church over time. We're not talking about being kind. We're not talking about being loving to the people of the world. We're talking about lowering standards, lowering uh, symbolisms, lowering the, the, the scriptural demands on the sinner in order to appear palatable to them or relatable. Not necessarily a problem in our church, though I think it's a temptation, but uh, definitely a problem in the kingdom at large, which all of us come from the kingdom at large to this assembly. Our behavior ought to be so extreme that rather than finding us relatable and rather than welcoming us into their camps, they ought to be repulsed by what they look at as weirdness. You know, just love, kindness, long-suffering, indifference to wealth, power, and fame, honest speech, like yays, yays, nays, nays, those horrible things that Christ was crucified for, you know, all that terrible behavior. But actually, it irritates the world. The salt stings the wound into which it's poured. Um, light shocks and annoys the eyes into which it shined when that light, when that, when those eyes have been in, in darkness. David, as we will see here, became actually very concerned that he would not be lumped in with the wicked that were around him. David is part of a remnant within God's chosen people at that time that worships God with great devotion, that worships, that keeps great disciplines in his life. And so he has a concern when he's, when he's observing some of the behavior around him, when he's seeing some of the way that brother treats brother and people treat him and, and he's seeing some of that interaction going on. He, he's troubled. He, he has some, some stuff starts to come up in his mind. He starts to meditate and think on some things that, that I think are the end up becoming producers of this psalm. He resolved, as we all should, to declare whose side he was on and what he would do to prove what side he was on. That's the premise of the psalm, I believe, is that David becomes concerned that he may be lumped in if he doesn't declare himself an ally to God, if he doesn't promise to behave a certain way and then keep that promise that he will be destroyed with the wicked. So verse one, he says, give ear to my words, O Lord, consider my meditation. So David opens this Psalm by petitioning God to pay special attention to what he's about to declare to him. It's not that David has something so important to say that God needs to stop what he's doing and hear him. That's not David's attitude at all. It's actually um, 
something rather different. It's great humility, though it does carry a tone of urgency. So if he sounds insistent, it's because it's urgent to him to get God's attention, that God would hear him out and that he would hear what he has to say to him and the commitment he's about to make to him. He says, Lord, he uses God's sacred name. I need to express something to you that has become greatly important to me. Hear and consider my fervent thoughts. That's what he means when he says, give ear to my words. It, he says, fan out your ear, cup your hand to your ear and incline yourself to listen to me. I, I need to make sure that you are hearing me. I've been contemplating something. I've been turning it over and over in my head and repeating it over and over under my breath. Um, the meditation. He has a meditation. He's been murmuring it. We, we know about this. Aaron knows about this. He's been muttering it to himself under his breath. He's forming these thoughts in his mind. He's, he's working them out on his lips and it's starting to heat up his brain. That, that concept is contained in the idea of meditation. His thoughts are becoming fervent. His brain is, his mind is heating up. His affections are getting stirred by what he's thinking of. Lord, cup your hand to your ear, enlarge your ear to hear me. He says, verse two, hearken unto the voice of my cry, my King and my God, for unto thee will I pray. He's saying, my sovereign King, Incline your ears to the loud cry of your humble servant. Hail, that's hearken unto the voice of my cry. I hail you, my Lord, my King, my sovereign. Hear me. Supreme God, incline your ears to the cry of your lowly creature. And he says, for I look to you exclusively for help. Only you. I pray to no one else. You are my king and you are my God. These are declarations that David has a purpose for making. These are clarifications that he wants to be sure that God has paused, leaned in and heard him. Then he begins to make some promises to God. And we know by David's life, he kept them. We know by the volume of his life work, that he kept these promises, that he was devoted to them. He says, My voice shalt thou hear in the morning, O Lord. In the morning will I direct my prayer unto thee and will look up. And that is, Lord, I will start my days calling out to you loudly. I will call out to you. I will make it my priority. Listen for me in the morning and you will hear my voice praying. If you listen, I'm praying. I will be doing this. And the phrase here, I will direct my prayer unto thee, it actually carries a sense of arranging in order, of laying something out in order. Just as ancient armies would set themselves strategically, the same word is found through the scriptures for these different contexts. The armies would go into a valley and they would, strategize how they would set themselves against each other. Just as Abraham thoughtfully and carefully laid out the firewood before offering up his son Isaac, 
And in the same sense that Aaron and his sons were commanded to carry out their services with exacting detail and order, well laid out as God had instructed them, David also would keep his promised appointment with rigor and discipline, going directly and only to God. I will pray every morning and I will look up. And that signifies that he would await God's favor. He would, if God looked down to earth in condescension, if he condescended to look to earth on whom he would shine his favor, he would meet David's gaze. It's a beautiful, beautiful statement. And it also carries that idea that I will look to you alone. That's where I'm looking, up to you with expectation. So in these opening sentences, David has expressed up front to God whose side it is he's on. Who is his only king and his only God? To whom it is he will direct his prayers and to whom alone it is that he will look for favor. But why does David feel compelled to declare these things to God? Like, what's the sudden urge? What's the sudden need to... Do you do this? Do you often just sit down and start making all these clarifying statements to God. Um, I'm, I belong to this group, not that group. I promise to do these things. Something would need to motivate that. And David has a motive. We, we know that he has a motive because the fourth verse starts with four, which means really because so he's making these statements, he's making these promises, and he'll reveal it. I, I think he reveals it in the next few statements. The, some very grave and consequential things about God have, have caused David's thoughts to heat up. He's, he's been turning these things over in his mind, and he's been muttering them under his breath and murmuring them under his breath over and over, and it's... It's almost as if he comes to just a sudden realization of the implications of what he's been mulling over. So it hits its mark. It comes to a point that he, he needs to take action. So he says, Lord, give ear to my words and consider my meditation. What heated me up? What stirred me up? The seriousness of his conclusions has motivated David to implore God for his undivided attention. This is what David had worked out. This is what had brought him to this point. He says, I need your attention. I'm telling you whose side I'm on. I'm aligning with you. I promise to behave a certain way. I promise to be in prayer. I promise to look only to you. You are my God. You are my king. I'm saying that for thou art not a God that hath pleasure in wickedness because you're not a God that has pleasure in wickedness is why I'm saying these things is why I'm making these declarations. Neither shall evil dwell with thee. Here's what I have observed. That's caused me to swear allegiance and service to you. I have concluded that you despise moral iniquity and do not tolerate evil in your presence. Evil is expelled and barred from before you. 
So he says, the foolish shall not stand in thy sight. Thou hatest all workers of iniquity. You will never look down in favor upon the boasting fool. That's what the foolish has. A, the word foolish there is actually halal. It's glory. But the, the idea is that this is a boastful fool. He glories in his, in his rebellion, in his foolishness, in his ignorance. A spirit of our age. I don't know what's going on. What a fool. We can say. Those who are careful in their walk can say, what is going on? What a foolish way to live. He says, you will never look down in favor upon the boastful fool. He will remain cursed and in misery. He'll never have your blessing. Thou hatest all the workers of iniquity is you personally and proactively hate and will be a formidable enemy to those who habitually exert themselves in wickedness, those who practice evil. God will personally hate and oppose and proactively oppose the life of those who are wicked as a habit. And in verse 6 is where David's mind probably heated up and his affections probably got hot enough that he began to address God because this is serious stuff. His, he's concluded, thou shalt destroy them that speak leasing. Where, where did David get these ideas from? Where did he, did he just, was he just walking around one day and he started thinking these thoughts and, and he was like, oh, I'm going to repeat these to myself until they heat me up. No, he got them from the word of God. David was acquainted with the law of God. We know that. He loved the law of God. It was his meditation all the day. And so what's actually happening in the background here, it's not mentioned here, but what we know of David is that he meditated on the law of God, on his statutes, on his precepts, on his ways, on the stories that had played out before David's time in the, in the chosen people of God and in the in the even more far removed patriarchs, something has provided David these thoughts. He's been mulling them over and now he can redeclare them in his own words. Thou shalt destroy them that speak leasing. The Lord will abhor the bloody and deceitful man. That is, you will destroy and that is annihilate, exterminate, those whose mouths are constantly spewing lies and deceit. It's actually become their form of speech. It's just deceptive. Everything they say is an angle, is a, is a spin on reality. And that's how they navigate the world. And they navigate that, that world in a world where everyone is doing that, just lying to each other and marketing to each other and deceiving each other and cheating each other through untruth. And so the God of truth is, he despises that very thing that is the opposite of what he is. The God of truth must hate untruth, deceit in the mouths of the people. And the Lord will abhor the bloody and deceitful man is, 
as if David said, you detest and regard as abominable, as as a monstrosity, those who cruelly shed blood, who are violent, who squash and who, who rob and starve the helpless, who cruelly, there's, a, there's cruelty embedded in that idea, just who shed blood. In a, the, the idea is innocent blood, though it, it's not technically innocent. The idea is they've done, they don't deserve what punishment is being carried out upon them. And so David returns to, in verse 7. Verse 7 is like the, it's the beautiful uh, verse of this psalm. It's the one that just, it melts you if you are one of God's children. It really grabs your attention well. It's the one that he probably, I don't know, sometimes I, I write and sometimes, Jeremy, you write. Sometimes a line just comes out and it's beautiful. And maybe that happened here, but maybe David really belabored this one. But he, whatever it is, he's declaring it to God. He returns to classing himself among those who are on the Lord's side, who reverently worship and love God's name. But I have some questions in here that I wrote out. Is there any proof that David isn't just another smooth talker and someone who knows how to placate and manipulate to avoid consequences of loose living. Like anyone could just say to God, I'll pray every day. I'll be, I'll hang out in your house. You're my God. You're my King. What proof is there? What proof does David offer so that God may easily differentiate him from those who work iniquity? Well, David doesn't just say he's different than those whom God abhors. He doesn't just make some occasional grand but empty overtures or pay lip service to God. David goes and does the hard thing. He actually consecrates himself. He dedicates himself to serve God religiously and on God's terms. And he does it in God's very presence. Remember, he has called God to attention. Please hear me. Hear what I'm going to say. And then he makes these promises of the way that he's going to behave and the the rigor that he's going to keep, the disciplines that he's going to keep before the Lord. Verse 7, he says, But as for me, so in contrast to them, as for me, I will come into thy house in the multitude of thy mercy. Isn't that just a grand, beautiful line? As for me, I will come into thy house in the multitude of thy mercy. And in thy fear will I worship toward thy holy temple. He's saying, I will not be as the fool who is barred from and despises your presence, who hates righteousness, truth, and peace, and loves violence. As for me... I will enter the sacred place you inhabit. And that's intimidating and terrifying. We, <laughs> but, but what a beautiful confidence and what a childlike trust David is laying out here before the Lord. I don't have a reason to 
feel like I should be barred. I don't have a reason to avoid your presence. What? How, how did David get to such a confident point? How could he say that to God? I will come into your presence. Well, he's actually saying, I will approach you by your merits, counting and declaring your abounding mercies to me. David has received the mercy of God. He's numbered the mercies of God. He, he's conscious of them. And so he therefore concludes, I can go into God's presence. He's a merciful God and he's been merciful to me. So he has, he has an argument for standing before the Lord and saying these things. I will, and I will humbly render to you the reverent service you are worthy of. Toward thy holy temple has this idea, the orientation of my life and my affections will be your holy habitation. Your holy temple will ever be my north, is what he's saying. I, I will worship toward your holy temple. It's almost as if he knows that he will not always be in the house, but he will incline himself in that direction. It's my orientation. It's on the compass. Others have... Markings, I have thy holy temple. It orients me. I never lose a sense of it. So how is it possible that while millions upon millions are actively being opposed by God, this man may claim entrance into God's very presence? Is it too bold? Is David out of line? Well, it's not for someone who has made their life's work to meditate on God. It's someone who has devoted themselves to studying the laws and the statutes and the precepts of God and has made it their constant meditation. They've learned what kind of God they have. It's not too bold for someone who has been walking around murmuring to himself the high thoughts of God and God's word because he's quickly figured out that mercy and truth are his access. So David is not confused about how close he may draw to God or with what trust and confidence he may come into the very presence of God. Where did he get that? He got that sense, not from hiding tons of sin and, and pervasive bad behavior that, that would, that would create a man or a woman who, struggles to come to God with any confidence at all. This confidence, this trust is the product of meditating on God's word. That's what it is, bottom line. Because just as the meditation of God's word has heated David up in this direction of this psalm, it's the meditation of God's word that has also heated up and intensify David's trust and confidence in coming into God's presence comfortably. David's meditations of God throughout his life yielded actually quite a lot of really beautiful lines. I did collect them, um, just, a, just a handful of, of the ones that I think really show his true sense of God's mercy and its operation in his life actually connects it quite often, though I only have a couple references. He connects it, mercy and truth, mercy and truth. Mercy. Beautiful lines. Um, 
Let me read some off. Psalm 23, 6. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. What a confident, beautiful statement. Surely, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Psalm 25, 10. All the paths of the Lord are mercy. All all roads lead to Rome, right? We have that as a maxim in 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 our Western culture. All roads lead to Rome. All the paths, let's, let's think of this one more and meditate on this one. All the paths of the Lord are mercy and truth unto such as keep his covenant and his testimonies. So to those who are obeying the demands of the covenant, to those who are conscious of and aware of his testimonies, who think of them and meditate them, all the paths of the Lord become as if they were mercy and truth. Um, Psalm 32.10, Many sorrows shall be to the wicked, but he that trusteth in the Lord, well, mercy shall compass him about. It's actually similar to the ending of this Psalm 5. Psalm 36.5, Thy mercy, O Lord, is in the heavens, and thy faithfulness reacheth unto the clouds. David is possessed with this. The mercy of God is piling up to the heavens. It's so much. Uh, 51.1, after his sin with Bathsheba, has been found out and he is crushed in repentance. Have mercy upon me, O God. According to thy loving kindness, he still remembers. According unto the multitude of thy tender mercies, do this for me. Blot out my transgressions. That's a beautiful line. Uh, nobody writes like that anymore. <laughs> you have, you know, we say sometimes that when we read these lines in the Psalms, we, they had to be filled with the Spirit. They had to be guided by the Spirit. There's so much in there. Have mercy upon me according to thy loving kindness, according unto the multitude of thy tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. 52.8. Now he's talking about a betrayal that occurred to him and he's prayed an imprecatory psalm, so he's prayed destruction upon the one who betrayed him and his household. It's a very hard psalm to read, but he says of himself, after after the desolation that he wishes upon his betrayer, but I am like a green olive tree in the house of God, watered, tended to, fruitful, and not planted just anywhere, not in craggy hills, not in semi-arid hillsides, not random. I'm like an olive tree in the house of God. What a, who thinks of themselves that way? Someone who's very acquainted with God and the mercy that God has had upon them. He says, I trust in the mercy of God forever and ever. Therefore, I am like an olive tree planted in the house of God, green, tended. 
57, 1 through 3, Be merciful unto me, O God, be merciful unto me. For my soul trusteth in thee. Yea, in the shadow of thy wings will I make my refuge until these calamities be overpassed. I will cry unto God most high, unto God that performeth all things for me. He shall send from heaven and save me from the reproach of him that would swallow me up. And then he inserts Selah, which we believe means to pause and meditate. It's a fitting for him to use that as a mechanism, Selah. And out of that meditation comes this. Well, God shall send forth his mercy and his truth. He's going to send them out. That's what he'll do. And then a few verses out of Psalm 103, the Lord is merciful and gracious. And that's evidenced by he's slow to anger and he's plenteous in mercy. For as the heaven is high above the earth, so great is his mercy toward them that fear him. The mercy of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting upon them that fear him and his righteousness unto children's children. David depended on God's mercy. He wasn't proud. He wasn't boasting that he could come into the house of the Lord and what he would do and worship and all of that. He depended on God's mercy. He knew he needed God's help. He knew what he was up against. There are some, there's some sense that David, it's actually there's always some sense in David and many of the other psalmists when they're talking about their enemy. There's always, there, there's some hints that they actually comprehend that to also be internal, internal enemies, lusts, desires, evil, past histories that trouble them, past actions that they took come back to haunt them. There's some sense of that in here, but I'll leave that for another time. He says, all of his promises to God are not in his own strength. Okay? So he's not just resolving that he's going to do this. He's not just girding up his loins and saying, I'm going to just... Carry this out. I'm going to do it. Knowing what he's promised God, verse 8, lead me, O Lord, lead me in thy righteousness because of mine enemies, because of what opposes me. You make thy way straight before my face. I, I'm going to miss it. I'm going to get Sideways, I'm going to get confused. I'll get lost unless you make your way straight before my face. I need to see it clearly. Help me. For there is no faithfulness in their mouth. Their inward part is very wickedness. Their throat is an open sepulcher. They flatter with their tongue. If just as a side note, if you ever wondered why the Pharisees or how offended they would have been when John and and Christ said spoke in these kinds of terms to them in these Psalms, it's because they were being equated with the, the wicked who God would abhor and destroy. They, they knew these Psalms. So when he says to them, your, 
you're like whitewashed tombs with full of men's bones. You're like like sepulchers full of dead men's bones that you have consumed. Then we're fighting words. And um, here's where it's drawn out of. David's identifying how evil, how deeply wicked those who oppose him and who misbehave and who surround him are. And just kind of to wrap it up, um, the last few verses maybe would serve as a way to observe how those who commit themselves to God's service also very quickly end up taking up God's causes and God's attitudes toward the wicked and toward wickedness. Um, we, we can see it there. He's, <laughs> he says, and I think it's hard for us to feel that he has a right to say this, but um, it is the right posture toward evil. Destroy thou them, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels. Let them. It, it, take off your hand. Lower the hedges. Let the floods flood over them. Open the dams. Let them be destroyed. Let them fall by their own counsels, by the own scheming, their own ideas. Let that consume them. Cast them out in the multitude of their transgressions. David has now become passionate about transgression. He wants them cast out with their transgressions. Just purge them out. David now has, through his rigorous discipline and through his service of God, has adopted that same attitude. But remember, he's actually still speaking to God with God's full attention, that he has drawn to himself God's full attention. He's saying, this is how I feel. I'm, I'm your ally. I will serve you. I will. I promise to be in your house in the multitude of thy mercies, to worship reverently toward you, destroy the evil wicked ones, cast them out in their transgressions. He's taking God's side now practically, not just by mouth, but in action. He's taking God's side now practically. And I hope you're picking up on on the application. I don't have a lot of time to give application or really even very many thoughts to tie in together to all this, but I hope you're picking up on that you may also benefit from this prayer. You may also, just as David did, you may also say, as I have done this week, and it was scary. It was scary. Lord, Pay attention to me for a few moments. I need your undivided attention. These things are wrong in my life. I've got work to do. Help me, Lord. I'm nowhere near this guy who wrote this. I want to be... So he says... They're worthy of destruction. They're, they deserve being cast out and purged out in the multitude of their transgressions. Not multitudes of mercies, but multitudes of transgressions. Why? 
They're rebels, for they have rebelled against thee. They're rebels. And this is the punishment that the rebel is worthy of. But let all those who ally with God enjoy his favor. He says, but let all those that put their trust in thee rejoice, have cause to rejoice. Let them, let joy rise for them who put their trust in thee. Let them ever and always shout for joy. Let them just have reason to just make noise, make joyful noise. Because thou defendest them. This should be the thought that puts it. The Lord has defended us. He is our defense. Shout for joy. Let also, or let them also that love thy name be joyful in thee. So just as he asks for God to remove the hedges that the evil be destroyed, he asks God to remove his hand to, to make it possible to remove all obstacles that these people may rejoice. That let that flow, let that joy come into them and water the land and create that fertility of just joy and exuberant happiness. Who taught David the concluding verse? the law, the statutes, and the precepts of God and the faithful ministers of God's word that he had in his life, by the way, the faithful brothers and sisters that he had around him in his life that talked about these things with him, that instructed him in these things. For thou, Lord, will bless the righteous. He knew this. He's not making this up. He knew it. Thou will bless the righteous. With favor wilt thou compass him uh, as with a shield. So he was able to declare this full and final thing with God. This is David saying, I have confidence that you've heard me. I have confidence that you accept my alliance. I have confidence that my promises are acceptable to you. I have confidence that all who engage in this type of exchange with you will have joy rise in their heart. You will bless the righteous. He's repeating back to God what he's learned from the law and the precepts. And with favor, thou wilt compass him as with a shield. You'll surround his life with favor. If we indeed end up heading into a, dark and difficult times, which, I mean, you can make the argument that it's been headed that way for a, a long time. It's not as if it just started happening. But if we end up there, we're going to need to already have dealt with our God in, in this fashion. Ally with him. Purge out what's wicked gain the confidence that comes from centering your life around his assembly and the assembly of his people where it predominates your interest, where it, it, it dominates your schedule, the house of God, the people of God, the needs of the people of God. My 
part in edifying the people of God. Because if things devolve too quickly, you're not going to have time to start dealing with with your life in that way. Um, and that, I mean, I'm not I'm not an alarmist. I I I think I see a lot of stability out there too. I think I see a lot of a potential for even um, pockets of peace to still remain and all of that. Um, I'm not trying to to twist your arm into dealing with God. Um, I'm saying that in the spirit of the Psalms today, if you will harden not your heart as in the day of provocation, because there was a day of provocation. There was a day where the Hebrews sealed their doom one day where they provoked God and he was displeased with them and they wandered and they never found their rest. And so um, just as a way of, of challenging you, of asking you to join me in the journey that I've taken and that others have taken through this psalm, um, please use this psalm this week. And I, I, all I want you to do is take this psalm, try to remember or maybe refer to the recording or your notes, and I want you to pray it. That's what I really want you to do, brothers and sisters. I want you to pray this prayer to God and see... I want you to to meditate on the things that David was meditating on and see if it stirs you to a greater commitment to him, a greater commitment to his house, a greater commitment to his service, a greater humility before him, and even a greater dedication to just numbering the mercies of God in your life, for they are plentiful. David could count them up to the sky, and that's how he saw them. They fill the sky, high as the heavens are. God's mercy is. That will make us, I think that will make us a, a just a better people. <laughs> that a righteous people are a good people, enjoyable, hearty. They can withstand much if that's where we're headed. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Uh, we thank you that you have designed for it to be useful uh, in our lives, that you've designed to actually send it forth to accomplish things where the spirit um, that you've also provided is doing work, is intending to, is, is mothering truth. And so we, we pray, Father, that uh, the, the word will have uh, an effect, that it will in time produce the fruit that you intend for it, uh, that for all of us we will have listening ears, but that we will not only hear, but but react to and behave and bring our lives into alignment, which is to be a doer of the word. We pray all these things, Father, in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. <laughs>